0: Our scripture reading today is from Genesis chapter 3 and 11. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fake leaves together and made themselves loincloths. cloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God Whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and the people migrated from the east. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butimen for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to the city to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them.
1: Amen. Uh, and uh, hello and welcome. Good afternoon. Welcome to, uh, to Mosaic for those of you who are new. And I'm excited about this series called The Story of the Bible. We're sort of at the front end. And the, the reason I'm so excited about it is because that many of us may know or we've read some Bible stories, but not all of us may know the story of the Bible. That is, where it came from and what the big picture is. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing here this week and all the weeks leading up to and including Easter. We're going to be taking a look at the story of the Bible. And each week, we'll be taking a look at one of the major plots. Points of the Bible along the way, each beginning with the letter C. Now, I'm going to show you this graphic a couple of weeks ago. I told you that you were only going to see it once, so I apologize. You should forgive me already. Uh, but you're going to see it again because we pushed pause on it more or less last week. So here's what we're looking at every week up to Easter. You can take a look at this. All these start with a C word. We saw creation today. Hey, catastrophe. Hang on. Calling, community, crown, corruption, captivity, Christ, cross, church, and consummation. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. And that's sort of your previously on the story of the Bible uh, moment. All right. Some of you have watched serial TV, know what I'm talking about. But uh, anyway, I hope that you'll give me some space with this, some time with this. I hope you'll stick with this and come back for this because I think that not only will you learn a ton through this series, but also if you'll stick in there with this, that your life will be better for it. Not just because your circumstances will be better, no guarantee there, but because you'll be better, because following Jesus, we believe, just makes you better. So I hope you'll stick around for this. So here we go, the story of the Bible, part two. Now, so some of the, the problems that many of us have had when it's come to the Bible is just sort of how the Bible has come to us. And some of us grew up, we, we, were, we grew up reading Bible stories or having Bible stories read to us. And maybe some of us, when we got a little older, we began to ask some questions about those Bible stories, about the stories that they may not you know, teach you in Sunday school or children's church back in the day. And some of you perhaps started asking some questions and you either didn't get, you either got no answers at all or maybe be sometimes you got some answers that you didn't like. And that's okay, I think. Sometimes that happens. I mean, I get answers to stuff I don't like all the time. For example, when I, when I ask Siri, I say, hey Siri, will the Dallas Cowboys win the Super Bowl this year? All she shows me is this. I don't understand what this means. I just, I think like, What's up with that? Now, the first service about booed me off the stage at this point. So second service, you guys are better. But that's, you know, what I get because sometimes, how many of you know, sometimes the truest answers aren't always the answers that you like. But nonetheless, answers matter. They do matter. But some of you, when you got those answers for whatever reason, you couldn't or wouldn't believe or trust the Bible anymore. But the second way, second reason some of us have some trouble with the Bible, again, is how it came to us. Because it just came... Like it came all stacked, you know, it was chaptered and versed and, you know, mapped and wrapped, and some of your Bibles were wrapped in that genuine fake leather uh, that you, you get and you, some of you had your name and fake gold on the front, because that's what Christians do. We put fake gold and fake leather around the Bible. That's how we, we got it, and somebody handed it to us like a loving parent or a trusted grandparent or teacher, and you know, you got it on you when you were confirmed or for Christmas or for your birthday, and they handed it to you. And you asked, Well, what's this? It's the Bible. Well, what's the Bible, you asked? It's God's Word, you were told. What do I do with it? You should trust it. Why? Because it's the Bible. (laughs) Why? Because it's God's Word. And maybe you were too young to say, well, that sounds like circular reasoning at four or five, six years old. But nonetheless, that's how the Bible came. And for some of us, that's, that makes it really hard to believe. But what? What? What what if I told you that the story of the Bible is way better than that? There's way more to it than that. That's what I hope to show you a bit more of today. And to do that, let me introduce you to someone that you may or may not have heard of before, probably haven't. And, and what if I told you that this person you're about to meet was really one of the major reasons that we have the Bible? Because once upon a time, there was no the Bible, right? So how did the Bible came to be? Well, in large part, it was due to this person. He, he was this first century pagan business person. He was not a Christian. Uh, he he was, could have been a CEO, could have been a politician. We don't know. But we do know that he was wealthy. And what if I told you that because of this one wealthy business person, not a Christian originally, we have what we call the Bible. And some of you may have heard of him. This guy's name was Theophilus. And the reason that we've heard of Theophilus is because something happened to Theophilus. And Theo, as we're, we'll call him, Theo was raised to be an idol worshiper. He went to like, you know, Zeus school, their Hermes class uh, every weekend to the Roman temple. And that was all he had ever known. But one day, Theo heard a new message. Possibly, probably from a friend of his named Luke, because Luke we know was a doctor. They were both wealthy, both were in the same social circles. And someone, we don't know for sure, but probably Luke, introduced Theo to a brand new message. And someone began to share with Theo this story that they claim was not mythically true, but was factually true about God becoming a man. Now, for Theo, that wasn't news because in his world, man, gods became people all the time. But this God-man was different. These stories were different because unlike Theo's gods, whose stories were all about how they came down and used people and slept with people and connived and cheated and lied and thieved, this God-man's stories were utterly different. The stories of Jesus were so different. Jesus, they said, cared for the people. He loved the people. He served the people. He lived, these stories, claimed a perfect life. And then something extraordinary happened to him. The people that he loved and cared and served turned on him and killed him. But then all these stories always ended up the exact same way, with Jesus dying on a Roman cross and coming back to life. And then hundreds and hundreds and hundreds more people who claim to have seen him alive again. And so Theo wanted to know more about this poor carpenter person From Israel, that's kind of weird. Israel, right? Theo's a Greek. Why Israel? It's like this small nation, funny religion. They've got like a temple with a vault in it with no gods. Who's got a temple with a vault? With no gods, you could touch it. And that was strange. Why are all these people writing stories about Jesus, this Jewish guy? And why, he would have asked, is Luke, my friend who's a doctor, rich, wealthy, on top of his culture, privileged position, why would he give it all up? Why would he risk death from the Roman Empire to, to serve this one true God whom he claimed was Jesus, not multiple gods, but only one? And why are so many people around me doing the same? What is so compelling about Jesus. So Theo decided he would do something to get to the bottom of all his questions. Theo decided he would use his money to actually fund an investigation into the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And because he trusted Luke, he funded his friend Luke. And so Luke investigated the life of Jesus. He went from doctor to reporter. And so Theo, that is Theophilus, whose name means, of all things, the God lover. Theo likely funded Luke's account of the life of Jesus Christ because when your name appears at the top of an ancient document, it's the author's way of letting the world know that you funded it, his way to give you credit. So Luke goes around, Luke interviewed the sources, the eyewitnesses, and this is what Luke wrote when he reported back to Theophilus in the document that now bears Luke's name. Certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Luke is saying here. Here's here's what I'm saying. He's saying. He's saying. He's saying. See what had happened was. (laughs) That's what Luke's doing. See Theo. You see what had happened was, and you can believe it. What had happened, Luke is saying, is what I'm writing to you. And right here, then we see something amazing. Right here, we see that by the time Luke writes this, likely the early 60s A.D., there were already, he says, many accounts of the life of Jesus in circulation in that day. And Luke is adding his to that group. There were documents, for example, about the life of Jesus, one of which we now call Mark, written by likely someone named Mark. It was dictated to Mark by likely Peter, Jesus' disciple. And we know this from a man named Papias, an early church figure who wrote it down. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Because Mark's gospel is the shortest, the most blunt, the most action-oriented, almost as if... It were dictated by a blunt, direct, action-oriented fisherman. Because guess who shows up in the first chapter? A blunt, direct, action-oriented fisherman. And then there was John's account. John was an eyewitness of friend of Jesus of Nazareth. Gives us stories only an eyewitness could know. Why did John write his account? Not because someone handed him the Bible. And told him to believe it. But because he saw Jesus not just teach, not just do miracles, but he saw someone die and then be raised back to life. And then there's the fourth account of Jesus' life. And this is the one that Greeks... And Romans, like Theo, would have found it especially fascinating because Matthew's account was a little different. It was written primarily to Jewish people. It contained a whole lot of, of references to the Hebrew Scriptures. Christians would later call it the Old Testament. Back then it was called the Law and the Prophets. And Matthew included these references to sort of show the Jews they had missed their Messiah. But now, as these accounts began to circulate, and people like Theophilus and hundreds, then thousands and tens of thousands of others began to believe not in a teacher. Not in a guru, not in a nice guy. They didn't claim he was just a sacred servant, but no, he was the one true God risen from the dead as they converted away from polytheism what they had been culturally conditioned to believe in and converted into Christian faith as these accounts began to circulate, especially Matthew's, the Greeks, and the Romans. And the Africans began to encounter the quotes and references to the Hebrew scriptures. They took up these Hebrew scriptures and they did with them what Jesus had told them to do with him. And the thing we should do with the Hebrew scriptures, they went looking for Jesus in there. And guess what? They found him everywhere because he is everywhere, because he said you could find him everywhere. He said, All the law and the prophets are about me. What a claim! And so these brand new Christians began to unroll these ancient scrolls and documents, and they picked up one we now call Genesis, not to bring in Judaism, which they did not want, not to bring back the temple, which they did not want, not to import Jewish culture or the sacrificial system, which they especially did not want, right? But they unrolled the scroll to find out their story and to see where Jesus had really come from. So what would have stood out to them? What would they, these former idol worshipers from all over the world, Greek, Roman, African, what would they have seen about the story of God? Like us, last time they saw creation. Week one, they saw that God made everything on purpose. It wasn't made by accident. It wasn't made through cosmic warfare like the stories of their gods. That God made the first people. He put them in a garden full of peace and harmony Beauty, oh, but this week (laughs) in part two, it's not good. As a matter of fact, if it was very good last time, this time it's very bad. You're forewarned, and so you're forearmed. And as you're going to see in a matter of just nine chapters, we're going to see now the complete catastrophe that humans brought into existence. So now, let's try to see through the eyes of Theophilus, through the eyes of the people in his day, the five parts, the five acts of the catastrophe that the scroll we now call Genesis shows us. Here we go. Five acts. Act one, and we'll call it the breaking. What are we supposed to see here about the breaking of the world? Well, the first humans in the story... You know them as Adam and Eve, but let's not call them that yet, because that's not what they're actually called yet in our story. They're first simply called Ish, the man, the male expression of the image of God. And Isha, the woman, the female expression of the image of God. They're created, we see, with equal dignity and worth, and yet they're not identical, they're not the same, Ish. Was created first and given the charge to steward the earth, personally given the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Isha was created last, that is, final, ultimate, the final act of God's creative power. She's the pinnacle of creation, moving from lowest to highest. We've got Ish the first and Isha the final. But what did Ish and Isha do it says so when isha the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she saw it was a delight for the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and ate, and she gave some also to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Now, as every kid, as every asked every parent Why did they do this, right? Why did they do this? Listen, volumes have been written on this more than you can bear at this time. But let me just highlight one thought. I think they did this, ready? Just because it felt good to them. That's what it says. When she saw the tree look good... That fruit was shiny. Oh, it was polished. The tree was desirable. Some of you are thinking about something else. Man, shiny, desirable. Oh, it looked good. And guess what? They just wanted it. And isn't it true then that when people only act on what feels good to them, the world breaks? And some of you are in this position today. Some of you are thinking about this. You want that person. You want that thing. You want that situation. And let me tell you, if you only act on what looks good to you, what feels good to you, oh, we break the world all over again. But now look, look at this first sign of brokenness here, of the breaking. Now ish, now becomes Adam. After the fall, he's only the soil worker, literally the ground man. He's only the tiller, ishah. Now she becomes Eve, only the mother, only the birther. They have been reduced to what they can produce with their hands and their bodies. The point is sin always reduces you to less than what you were meant to be always reduces you to less than who you were meant to be. Listen, in our story, hear me, we were not originally Adam and Eve, only tillers, only mothers, only workers, only just parents. We were ish and Asha, male and female, made to live in glory with each other and with God. And therefore, in particular, inside the church of Jesus, language and behaviors and structures can be things that help us remember that or cause us to forget that, I think I'd like to remember our better story, right? And I hope, therefore, that when we look at one another, when we look at every little boy, when we look at every gr- grown man, we would be able to say to him, first, you are ish. You are the male likeness of God, the creator. When we see our daughters, our young our young women, and our grown women, we would be able to say to them, you are Isha, You are first the female likeness of God. Don't you think if we do this, we'd have a better story to tell the world. Don't you think if we remembered this right, the world would be a better place? I think it would. The world's better when we remember our better story. Act 2, the brothers. The breaking from Adam and Eve is now passed into the genetic code of their kids uh, named Cain and Abel. And it says this, when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Look at how fast sin spreads. Just from eating some naughty fruit in the garden to murder in a field. This is showing you sin is spreading faster than humanity can keep up with. Now, maybe uh, you, like other people, you're asking, well, why didn't God just stop this here? I mean, it's not like he's got a lot else going on right here. No nation, no world, just a few people, right? He's not, can't be busy. Why didn't he stop this? Why doesn't God just end the evil in the world right here, right now? Well, the same could be asked of you and of me. Why doesn't God end your evil? Why doesn't God end my evil right now? Consider this. Of the seven recorded statements between Cain and God, five are questions God asks when he comes to Cain directly. He says stuff like this all the time. What's up, Cain? What you doing, man? Hey, what's going on, Cain? What are you feeling, man? Something brewing in there? You got some sin crouching at your door. Hey, man, you going to want to watch out for that? What's happening? Do you see this Cain over here? What do you call that? Other than persistent intervention, God tries to get Cain to stop. But Cain can't stop, won't stop. And God is coming to some of you today just like that, intervening in your life. You've been hearing him talk to you, hearing him speak to you. Don't ignore that voice. He's trying to get you to stop before you sow a seed that can't be undone. Some choices cannot be unmade like Cain's. Listen when God is coming to you act three the bully go from the breaking to the brothers to the bully now cain moves east cain's got kids we've got kids and one of them is named lamech and with lamech oh it's gotten worse he is cain on steroids with lamech we see now the first mention of polygamy in the bible it says this and lamech took two wives and you'll notice by the way It never says this is a good thing. (laughs) And as a matter of fact today, if you could say there is a favorite wife in your life, I would imagine things are pretty complicated for you. If there's a favorite husband you got on demand somewhere, there's probably some complications that you should have thought about. But with Lamech, though, here's what he does. Not only does he redefine marriage in two ways, because now it's not just one woman, but it's what he wants with two women. Secondly, he's also not doing what Ish was created to do, lay his life down for his wife. Now he's dominating these women. The word took is a play on words in Hebrew. It doesn't mean just to have two wives. It means to seize with the hand, to forcibly abduct, now this is sort of a, a first primeval image of what we now call toxic masculinity, right? Is this not good? He's dominating these women, and by the way, it never goes well in the Bible for men who abuse women. There's a lot of stories. It is look at Tamar and Judah, and among others. But Lamech here not only redefines marriage, but he redefines justice because God had put a mark on Cain. He said, "Listen, you touch Cain, it's seven times worse is going to happen to you," and that was God's way of trying to put an end to violence. But Lamech says, Ho, 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 I'll decide where justice ends. I'll decide where it begins and what it looks like. And Lamech not only murders like Cain, but now he's not even remorseful like Cain was. He sings a song about it, the first song recorded outside Eden. Like a bully, he's bragging about his murder. He brags his revenge will be, he says, If Cain's revenge was sevenfold, ha, minus 70fold. Take that world. Lemic's bragging, this is a Hebrew narrative way of showing you. He's bragging. He's got unlimited power. He's a law unto himself. Conservatives say sin's redefining marriage. Liberals would say sin is ignoring what's just, but this is showing you sin is both. It's both. Act for the boat. Now there's not just one Lamech. Ooh, it's getting worse. We're shown there's a whole world full of Lamechs in the account of Noah and the ark. This is how it begins. A whole lot of Lamechs. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually sin is now spreading faster than human beings can keep up with him now in act for god the creator he allows his creation to become unmade through a giant flood in the effort to stop the spread of sin and he tries to start over with one family unfortunately something else besides the animals went into the ark with noah And the word, sorry to sort of paraphrase all apologies to Jeff Goldblum, Jurassic Park. Sin finds a way. Sin finds a way. It found a way in. Sin found a way in. It found a way out. Flood ended. They went out. They spread out no better than they were before. Act 5, the building. Flash forward a few years, humanity spreads out again, and now armed with what was considered high tech for the day, the citizens of the world, they gather to try to build a tower to overthrow heaven, but God says it comes down and scatters them. Now, people, when they read this, they think, they've written, you know, we think that God was personally threatened by this. And that's why he had to stop it. He was so scared. Listen, 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 people, God literally controlled the elements of the planet in the previous story. I don't think he's worried about what a group of Bronze Age industrialists with Lego bricks can do, right? I mean, when he says he had to come down, it was his way of saying, oh, you're building something. All the way to heaven, is it? How, how's that going for you? Oh, hang on. I can't see it. Let me come down. It's got to be like in the carpet somewhere. Oh, they all built something. Look, there it is. A building. You put a building up. Oh, my gosh. So if he's not worried about what they can do to him, what, he, what is he worried about? Well, he's worried about what they can do to everyone else with no language barrier to stop their aspirations of power and literally global domination. That's the point. Nothing can stop them from enslaving the world. That's what you're supposed to see right here. Genesis 11, this marks the end of the line for humanity. The total collapse, the catastrophe. It's gone from bad before the flood to worse after the flood. And now every bit of technology, power, ingenuity, the human race can muster. He's gathered out in a field to construct a giant middle finger against God and heaven itself. That's what you're supposed to see. So what's God going to do now? What, hey, the world's at an end. The human race is at an end. What What is he going to do? That's what we're supposed to ask. And before I show you the answer, let me say this. Here's what you're going to see. What God is going to do is what God always does with us. He offers us mercy in the middle of the mess. Every single time. Mercy in the middle of the mess. Let me show you how. With the breaking act one, what did God do? It says he, he came to them. He covered them with animal skins. And for the first time in our story, there's the shedding of blood to cover sin. Adam and Eve, though, had tried to cover themselves with fig leaves, their own coverings, their own makings. Don't we do this? Come on. We cover ourselves with stupid fig leaves of money, stupid fig leaves of sex or power. Getting on the gram every day, right? To find our likes and dislikes, how much people like us because we're so insecure. We try to cover that up. But God's got a better covering from Adam and Eve. And one day, he would send a better covering for all of us. Only this time, the price of the covering for all us, Adams and Eve, will be the price of his own son. Even then, there was mercy in the middle of the mess. Act two, with the brothers, what did God do? Oh, here, God shows us his justice mixed with his love. He said, Cain, yeah, I'm going to judge you, but why? Because I'm grumpy? Because I'm having a bad hair day? Because I'm grouchy? No, because I love your brother his brother, other Abel, his blood cries to me from the ground. I'm going to judge you because. I loved him. And one day, let me tell you, another Abel came, another innocent victim who came to a group of elder brothers who hated him because his actions were more righteous than theirs. And Jesus Christ lived like an Abel, like a better Abel, but he was judged and condemned like a cane, driven out from human community for all us canes. And now his blood speaks a better word. It doesn't cry out for vengeance. No, it cries out for love. It says, let the judgment fall on me. Father, there was mercy in the middle of the mess. Act 3, with the bully, what did God do? Oh, we see right after Lamech's bully cry, right after his misogynistic, violent rant against people, women, God, it leaves a sad and hollow look at the very next words. It says, And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of... Abel. This is showing us God sent an appointed one named Seth through whom God would begin to build another line of people. And one day God would send not just an appointed one, but the appointed one, another son of promise from the line of Seth through whom he would build another family, another line of people in the earth. There was mercy. In the middle of the mess with the boat, act four, what did God do? Well, we call it a rainbow, but the Hebrew word for it is war bow. God, it says, put his war bow in the clouds. Why would he call it that? Well, look, friend, look which way it's aimed. The bow isn't aimed at us. It's aimed up at heaven. And one day, Jesus Christ would become the arrow that was shot into the heart of God, that the justice that should have fallen into our hearts would go into his. And Act 5, with the building at Babel, what did God do? Well, we only get a hint. And this is where we'll pick up our story next week. But when the world's at a dead end, at the end of the line, what does God do? He chooses a person. And we'll meet him next week. His name is Abraham. And God said, Abraham, he said, leave the place where you are. Son, leave all that stuff behind. All your idol worship behind. Leave it all. Come follow me. And I'm going to make a covenant with you to save the world through you and through your family. And one day God would do it all over again. One day he would raise up Abraham's descendant, the ultimate Abraham and the ultimate father of a people and make a new covenant with Jesus to save the world. See, every single time God offers mercy in the middle of the mess every time every single time God had a plan from the beginning every single time though humans fail God is faithful the bo- the story of the Bible the point is is really the story of us that's what those first Christians saw and what you need to see that we are messed up people who do messed up things but who receive grace though we don't deserve it The story of the Bible is not about great people who live great lives but it's about a great God who saves by his great grace and if there are Therefore, one thing that makes me not only believe the Bible is true, but makes me want it to be true. It's that word right there. It's the word grace. I mean, even if you don't believe it's true, why wouldn't you want it to be true? A God of grace. I mean, what do you want to be more true? What do we want to be more true? A God who only loves the good, only loves the rich, only loves the wealthy and the privileged and the powerful. Who only works for the lives of morally flawless people. I don't want that, God, because that ain't me. Never has been, never was will be. It's not you either. And I don't just believe this is true. Let me tell you, I want this to be true because of what it shows me. A God of grace who worked with people like me who don't deserve it. A God who's always got a plan, even for the flawed. A God who judges evil, speaks up for the powerless, and yet in the end takes all the punishment for all the people, though he didn't deserve any of it. You tell me who's got a better story to give to our world and our nation and our culture. Only the God of the strong or the God who is strong, who loves and meets and saves the weak. And do you know? Do you know how you come to know him? It's the same way. It's you. You meet him in your weakness, your weakness by saying those stories are really my story too. I need grace just like them, like all the Adams and all the Eves and all the Noahs. All along, I need grace too. And some of you, you may say, "Morgan, I've been coming to church, trying this church thing, trying this God thing, trying this." Faithing. it doesn't seem to be working for me, let me just give you one final illustration thought and maybe even clue for you. Some of us, and this was me for many years, I came and I heard the stories and I thought, well, you know what, God's just gonna do stuff for me and so I'm just to sort of gonna abuse him and use him, but that's not how a real relationship works, is it? I mean, could you imagine if on my wedding day at the altar, I turned to my, my bride to be Carrie and say, oh, I love all the stuff you'll do for me. I love all the the care and the emotional support and all the love you can give. But that that female part of you, I don't want that. Leave that behind. What do you think she would have done? Yeah, I may have been left standing there, right, in my, in my you know, early 2000s, two big ill-fitted tucks, right? I mean, she would have left me standing there, and you would have done the same thing to someone else because that's not how a real relationship works. If you only use a person for what they can do for you, but you don't honor them for who they are, that's not a real relationship. The Bible says that Jesus isn't just Savior. He doesn't just do stuff for you. He is Lord. He's Lord. He's God. He's Master. He's Creator first. And because when we acknowledge Him that way now, Oh, oh! Now we're able to access that grace, which transforms our life. See, we meet Him in our weakness, and we acknowledge we don't just need some help. Now we need someone else to run our lives. He is Savior and Lord. And when we come to Him like that, friends, your story now, like mine did, well, we can get turned around because there's mercy for all of you, all of me, all of us in the middle of our mess today.